This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Depression and other affective disorders have long gone underdiagnosed and untreated, but the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated this growing crisis. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 41 percent of Americans 18 and older reported symptoms of anxiety or depression during the pandemic, compared to nearly 11 percent in 2019. Rates of post-traumatic stress disorder and substance abuse also grew dramatically, along with other risk factors for mental illness, such as intimate partner violence and child abuse. All of these factors come under the umbrella of a recent talk here in southwest Florida by acclaimed psychiatrist Dr. Ray DiPaolo through the FGCU Provost Seminar Series of the Naples Discussion Group titled Depression, the Invisible Pandemic. Dr. DiPaolo is a university distinguished service professor and co-director of the Mood Disorder Center at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His research interests include a focus on clinical assessment, diagnosis, causes, and treatments of mood disorders, genetic studies of bipolar disorder and unipolar depression. He's written more than 160 peer-reviewed articles and authored two books aimed at making a broader understanding of depression more accessible. He's twice been named a Forum Fellow at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I recently caught up with Dr. DiPaolo ahead of his talk. Let's hear that conversation now. So, Dr. DiPaolo, the, the title of your talk is Depression, the Invisible Pandemic. Is the pandemic reference meant literally to the COVID-19 pandemic, or, or is it kind of, you know, also more broadly just about how depression tends to go unrecognized in our population? Well, it's a little bit of both, but it, it, I, I do, I am inspired by the COVID-19 pandemic uh, because it has taught us much more about the social causes of depression than we appreciated maybe before. And uh, it's really been very interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. I was reading, um, you know, some CDC stats. Um, you know, more than 41% of Americans 18 and older reported symptoms of anxiety and depression during the pandemic, and and that compared to something closer to 11% in 2019. Right. Um, so clearly, this has has, has had a, a huge impact on on our collective mental health. No doubt about it. And uh, the uh, the thing we were being being more aware of as uh, before the pandemic hit was the increasing rates of depression and anxiety in young people, okay? And then all of a sudden, boom, COVID hit and just multiplied them so that in a sense that there was a hidden pandemic before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were trying to raise the alarm and people were talking about it, but not exactly addressing it completely. And then the pandemic came along and all of a sudden, it's like 10 times more than you ever imagined, maybe like Hurricane Ian, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. In, we'll in, get into that too. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's interesting. So it almost sounds like we had this huge problem before, and then everything that we were doing that from a public health and epidemiology perspective was the good thing, you know, social right. distancing, staying home, just exacerbated our mental health issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how have you seen that play out, you know, in the clinical setting? Well, uh, in a couple of different ways. Um, and, the, and the first thing is that, you know, I'm a, a physician, uh, and so I'm looking at clinical depression uh, as a, quote, disease, understanding that disease is a construct, not a, not a thing. And to see it as a disease means that we're going to look at it in a particular way. That is, we're going to look at it in terms of the cluster of symptoms that characterize it, if we can, to find out what is not functioning right in the brain, right? That would be called pathology if we found it. And then the original cause. Well, it turns out 
causes is the is the right way to look at it. And um, almost every disease uh, that we study, in fact, almost every behavior, uh, has a genetic some genetic contribution to it. And the idea about the genetics, why we'd be interested in that part, sometimes when it's maybe even small, is that it gives you a pathway. It starts talking about which molecules or which brain cells, you know, are relevant. So that we would maybe have got maybe more focused on that, uh, in a way. And uh, and but the powerful movers, uh, maybe, are things like the pandemic. And uh, what was it about the pandemic that was so powerful? And the answer, for the most part, was not that COVID causing depression, which it can do, mm-hmm. okay? But the social isolation, especially for young people and especially for adolescents, uh, was extremely powerful. And, you know, and it doesn't mean all those kids need to go on medicines, although some do and uh, quite a few do. But uh, it, it just means that we need to be aware that that's part of the picture and that the, it just shows you how powerful the social forces are in even things that we call diseases, rightfully so in a way. Doesn't mean every you know the word depression is a bit of a problem word. Uh, How so? Well, in that uh, it it the word people have a sense of what the word means. Okay, means you know you know you you feel bad, uh, you're sad maybe. Uh, but uh, as one of my patients once said, who was a writer, that he didn't like having a disease the name for which was synonymous with a rut in the road and an economic decline. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it has a lot of too many meanings, and therefore it can be confusing, right? Yeah. And and most people who haven't had depression or haven't had a family member with a bad depression, you know, as this author did too. His name was William Styron, actually a great novelist. Uh, and he wrote a little book about his depression called Darkness Visible, mm. uh, a quote from Paradise Lost. And um, But uh, he said he, when he first heard about it, he, he would always just kind of shake his head and wonder, well, what the heck is that? Does that mean you had a bad day? Right. And then he said, no, wait a second, folks. This is completely different than that, right, when he had it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is maybe coming up a little earlier it's in the okay. conversation than I had intended it to, but I'm thinking about – what everybody went through with the pandemic. And then on top of that, people have a lot of anxiety from you know, economic sure. challenges. Everything from housing to the price of eggs has skyrocketed. Um, and then here in Southwest Florida, you know, of course, the ongoing recovery from Hurricane Ian, you know, some people lost loved ones in the storm or lost their entire homes or their businesses. And how, how can a person go about determining whether or not what they're experiencing, what if it's a normal reaction to right. a seemingly endless series of, of terrible things versus something diagnosable that can be treated? Absolutely. No, it's a very good question. And, and in fact, that's probably the, one of the number one reasons why people don't come for help early uh, with depression is because they don't recognize those things. And as we say, the, the things that cause it are myriad, uh, but that we tend to think of whatever the result is as related directly to that cause, uh, okay, and and it's related, but uh, as uh, some people would talk about, proximate causes and uh, and uh, maybe distal or ultimate causes, uh, they they can be more triggers, okay. If you go into this, because it's understandable that people would get discouraged and even demoralized, yeah. right? But uh, clinical depression is something that's really quite different, as Styron experienced, as he said. He you know he thought that something was going terribly wrong in his head and that he couldn't get his brain to work, okay, and uh, felt quite hopeless. And uh, sadly, patients, when they get depressed, also tend to believe that they did something wrong that caused it, okay? So uh, those, that cluster of symptoms of changes not only in your mental functioning, 
but uh, so that you, you can't concentrate, you can't focus, uh, and you don't have the energy or the interest to do things that you normally would. But you also then judge yourself very badly. People are used to talking about people's sleep and appetite and those sorts of things in depression. And those do change often, but not always. But the more characteristic heart and soul of uh, bad clinical depression is that change in your mental functioning that you can see there's something wrong with it yourself, that I can't, I can't get out a sentence. I can't even uh, uh, you know, read more than three pages without having to reread them. Uh, yeah. But, but also then that change in how you feel about yourself, how you see yourself as a worthwhile person. Did I cause this or not? And then also how you see yourself in the future. So hopelessness, worthlessness, and then this, this vitality, that mental and physical vitality that you lose are, are pretty characteristic. And so it's important. And people don't always recognize it. And it's when they, somebody does or somebody outside says, wait a minute, you know. Uh, let's, let's talk is that often it. too? Like people who are in it are just too deep in it to really even have that self-analysis? You've got it. That's exactly right. And, uh, and they feel like that's why they feel like they've got something that no one could possibly figure out and uh, that a doctor couldn't possibly understand what they were going through because it seems so ununderstandable to them. You're absolutely right. They, yeah. And they lose insight, therefore. And in yeah. fact, that's why you need to get patients somewhat early so they can understand the idea of treatment. When you get people very, very much into it, by then it's too late for them to see it. it. Luckily, sometimes we can get them to cooperate with treatment. But uh, as I told, one patient told me after he had agreed to take treatment, he, he thought, and his wife was the one who persuaded him, just, honey, please, for me, just do it. He said he felt like he was making the decision to jump out a 10th floor window. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, that, uh, and uh, don't worry, honey, it'll be good, right? <laughs> and he did it because he thought, well, I'm not getting anywhere this way. So yeah. I'll give it a shot. Right. On the other end of that, does a lot of what we know about the experience of depression and affective disorders come from people who are getting treatment and then you know, maybe didn't even realize? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, they're much better witnesses after they've gotten better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that then they can go back and say, yeah, you know, uh, you might not even believe. In the same way with the people that have bipolar disorder, a, a form of depression, if you will, who have the manias. And in the manias, though, it's just the reverse in that they feel like their brain is working super well, mm. better than it really is, and that they see the future as absolutely endless, that they're invulnerable, nothing could possibly harm them, and that, in fact, that they are somehow tied in in a very important way with the cosmos, right? Yeah. That their thoughts, or had one patient who thought he was so, somehow, in some strange way, the state of Israel, this was back when they were having a lot of Israel-Arab wars, and that every day how he felt when he woke up was going to determine a warlike day versus a peaceful day. Yeah. You know, and how can you come to that idea, right? He was a smart guy. <laughs> I mean, it sounds dramatic, but it's, it's, that's what it feels like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I wanted to go back to sure. something you had talked about earlier about the pandemic exacerbating, uh, you know, mental health challenges for, for adolescent and teen demographics in particular. Do you think there are other demographic groups who were disproportionately impacted? And I'm just thinking about you know, isolation is already a big problem Absolutely. for seniors. And I think COVID-19 was probably a, a much bigger anxiety trigger for mm -hmm. people who were in those high-risk categories. Well, yes, that's it was somewhat, except to say that if you look at it demographically, the elderly were the least changed huh. in their percentage of depression. Actually, interestingly, uh, they seem to have, believe it or not, and because there were lots of reasons why they shouldn't, but they seem to have somewhat less depression than other people. And I don't know if that's actual, that their brains are enough different and their brains are working better <laughs> at mm -hmm. that age, uh, or if it's that they 
have had so many experiences in their life that they have found a way to cope with it. Right. Uh, but but getting back to that, the other group that was very interesting to study, at least, and we were very concerned about, were the healthcare workers, right? Mm. And how this was, people were getting burned out, and they were terribly anxious because at the time they didn't have the proper PPE, as they call it, right? right. Uh, and they were seeing dying patients, and they were coming and going. They were having to get, you know, eighteen wheelers to use them as morgues. Uh, you know, that was pretty pretty terrible. But it turned out that over a long period of time, when this thing went on for a year, two years. We found that the people that suffered the most were not the frontline workers, okay, because they, in fact, by then had developed a team and an esprit de corps, and they knew what they were doing and why, okay, and that, so there was, and they had a lot of support from the hospital, right. usually, and the administration, um, and the nurses were the front lines of the frontliners, okay, um, and their the social support they got and needed was very important. The people that actually had the most changes in their anxiety and depression scores on these questionnaires were the people that were the people whose regular routine work in the hospital had been basically put on hold, and they were the backups being waited to be called in. Oh, wow. So they were as isolated as anybody. Yeah. So it looked like social isolation was the driver in the healthcare population of people as well as in the adolescents. Okay, but it, and although they do say in one of the studies that it was seemed to be in the, with adolescents as much they're they're losing their usual physical activities as well as their social activities. That both you have a drive to do both. Both are important in brain development. And boy, they hit the wall there for a while, right? Yeah. So I do expect that most of those cases will go away of their own. Okay, once they're back in with uh, their classmates. But I know of many cases where it hasn't worked that way. Now, this next question, I have an ulterior personal motive for asking it. Um, But yeah, I mean, things have kind of gone back to normal or at least a new normal. And I just noticed myself, I, I kind of got used to isolation. And now I'm allowed to leave my house, but I did not get back into my routines of socializing on a regular basis. It's it's rare for me to go out if you know and yeah. and but I don't I don't necessarily feel sad about it, but the more I think about it as I've been preparing for this, I've been sort of been more introspective than I've been about it. And I'm like, "Well, what is that about?" Well, I, you know, I can't tell you exactly right. what it's about, but I I would say I had the same thing. Okay. That, 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 and I think it does take a while to get people back into it and so that I, I frequently, um, you know, always get together with my nurse and my admin, administrative assistant in the morning before work to kind of not only reaffirm what we're going to try to do today, but several times they would, you know, my nurse would say to me, well, they, you don't have anything that's in person today. It's all still on Zoom hmm. for you today. So why come in? Well, I need the social <laughs> structure of work and uh, and a nurse and, a, and an assistant who are going to make sure I'm doing what, I'm, what I said I was going to do, Right. So um, uh, I'm with you. I do understand that. Yes, I do think that people have developed habits, but it, it is interesting. I do think that those of us who have done that and then had the ability to introspect about it probably didn't have to suffer the big, biggest hits, you know? Right. If you're thinking about it, that's probably a good sign. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> okay. right. And it's like, okay, what do I need to do? And, and what I found is when I first time I spent a week back at work, at least four days back to work, I go, wow. This is where I'm meant to be, you know, and because and it's, you know, what I love doing is taking care of patients yeah. and teaching. And, and taking care of patients, actually, we, in psychiatry especially, we can do a lot of that on Zoom, yes. right? Uh, and, but the teaching isn't the same, and it's obvious it isn't the same. And, and we know they're missing some things in the patient care too, but, but, but the, in the patient care side, we got also we got instant home visits 
out of it. A family member might walk through. They might even join in the conversation. That would be very mm. helpful to me. So there was a plus side to that. And also people didn't miss as many appointments, by the way. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, while we're on this topic, I, I'm really just curious about your thoughts on telemedicine more broadly when it comes to the field of mental health treatment. Um, I kind of get the sense that before the pandemic, the regulatory framework when it came to the use of telemedicine was a bit more stringent, and then that just kind of opened up because it had to. Well, it did, but it's now closed back up. Oh, yeah, and, and there are places where people are trying to get it to reopen. There were places trying to get it to open even before this. Uh, but right now, it's now back to licensing in states. And there are some workarounds, but not so many. And I would say that the other thing to remember, though, is I think that telemedicine works best when it's a supplement to face-to-face care. Okay. okay? So that you really do have that face-to-face experience. And because, you know, the things that don't show up in the room when you're doing telemedicine as opposed to medicine and proper is the evidence of a patient who has a behavior that's a problem in their care. So drinking, drugs, eating disorders are all quite problematic and they all got worse during the pandemic as well as the depression side. Right. Okay. So the depression was driven by social isolation, but so were those other things and the depression maybe drove some of those behaviors more too. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something specific to our area that I, I was hoping you might address. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Lee County, where we are, our region's only designated mental health crisis stabilization unit remains closed because of damage from Hurricane Ian, you know, back in September. And there's this ongoing stalemate between, you know, was it wind damage? Was it flood damage? And there, to date, have not been any payouts. So the facility remains damaged, empty, shuttered. And this is leaving upwards of thousands of people, you know, in the throes of a mental health crisis in peril. Is that situation, do you think, somewhat indicative of the broader issue of mental health treatment not being seen as equivalent in value to physical health treatment? Because I can't imagine we'd be in this situation if we were talking about like a, a more traditional hospital. You better believe it. You're yeah. absolutely right. And that is uh, very important. In fact, even the notion of the stabilization units uh, in some states, that's considered the psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not the function, complete function of a psychiatric hospital. There are very, very ill patients who need to be treated in hospital because they can't sustain treatment as an outpatient. Okay. And so already the fact that that became, it's one thing to have an ICU, right? Okay. And hospitals have that for their cardiac patients and their patients with pulmonary disease. Uh, this is like the ICU for, but it's without the rest of the hospital. Okay. Yeah. We're not doing the other things that need to be done. So uh, uh, stabilization units are fine as long as they're not a substitute for the whole treatment setting for inpatient settings. Okay. One of the things we've done in our, our, our culture in the U.S., and it's mostly a product of the insurance, you know, well, is it water or was it this? Because we'll pay for that, but we won't pay for that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that goes on in my field all the time. Sure. Right? And so that uh, what will you pay for? Well, they'll, they say they'll pay for stabilization. But, but they see no reason to pay for uh, someone staying in the hospital for three weeks mm-hmm. uh, to get uh, treatment for a very, very severe depression. But that's mostly, uh, you know, in our, our unit, we have both. And we even have, we have short-term, short, uh, very short-term. <laughs> and then we have, well, we're going to treat you. And then when you're going to treat you, that varies from two weeks to, to a month and a half, you know. So, uh, and what I'd like to do is get the people in the hospital who will get the greatest benefit from being in the hospital, okay? Because yeah. and 
And the thing about those patients we, what we, we usually get who end up staying two, two, a month and a half or a month, uh, those patients have usually been in five other hospitals where they had four or five five-day stays. Okay, mm-hmm. but they didn't really get treated. Mm-hmm. Okay, no one kind of spent the time to really get to know them, to figure it out, to get them on a treatment, and to see that it was working before they sent them home. Okay, wow. So mental health, you're right, is not like physical health, uh, and it is interesting. You know, I've talked to my colleagues. Uh, I ran after I was chairman of the department at Johns Hopkins for 15 years. I got a great step-down job of being the chair or president of the National Network of Depression Centers, and and that was really cool. Uh, but um, what I what I uh, learned was that um, uh, everywhere we went, okay, that um, you know people in cardiology and in cardiac surgery didn't have to give too much explanation. Here's the heart. Obviously, you can't live without the heart. There it is in the bucket. We're putting another one in there, okay. But those patients would, you know, by the way, many of them last a long time. Many of them don't last a long time. If you do it when it's not necessary, you're really putting the patient at greater risk. But you know what you want is to get those patients or get the biggest the biggest delta. You want to get the biggest bang improvement that you can get for an individual patient, but also for the set of patients you're treating. Yeah. So, so the aspect of your work that is essentially advocacy, I, I'm thinking about how how do you frame an argument in a way that's going to advance the challenges you were just referencing? Because I'm I'm thinking about. <laughs> Because it's kind of it can be difficult to to quantify. Absolutely. Um, but if you put things in terms of money and numbers, yeah. that that can be helpful. So I was hoping I, I could get well. You to it's there. It's yeah. the, you're, we're there. We're counting them. Although it's interesting, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it's it, by the way, my friends in cancer work. Whether when I started when I was in the National Network of Depression Centers, I still am in it. But um, the I talked to the people who ran the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network, and. They laughed when I told them that their work was obviously much superior to ours because they could quantify all these treatments they had studied and they had 10-year disease-free survival for the top 100 treatments they had for cancer. I said, that's really great. And they said, yeah, but you know, in our guidelines and how we're teaching people to treat patients, only about 3% of what we teach them is in those studies. And they're like, what? Oh, my God. Said, yeah, most of it is stuff we know from experience, hmm. okay? And But we know that we can modify that as we learn more and we do this specific research, but... But there's so many questions that you can't ask. You can't do every experiment possible in a field. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and, and we can't stop just with what we know from experiments. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I'm with you. And the point is that I was saying, like you, well, geez, in mental health, you know, we have a hard time explaining ourselves. Um, and they say, well, hey, guess what? We're only using 3% of that in cancer. Right. Wow. Yeah. In their in their guidelines. Now, I'm sure. By the way, I don't want any cancer doctors out there to say, "Hey, wait a second, you're totally wrong there," because I can't tell you that. But that was the testimony of of one of the leaders of the National Comprehensive Cancer Center networks. Understood. Understood. Yeah. I was listening uh, to a, a podcast episode you were a guest on back in 2020. The podcast was called "It's Okay Not to Be Okay," uh-huh. and and a word that came up in that discussion uh, concerned depression and its impacts in the workplace, and that was presenteeism. Right. What's this about? Yeah, well, that's it's a very good point, and the word came up because of really this this look, and that is that it's uh, the the biggest cost of depression is not treatment. In fact, there's very good evidence that treatment is very helpful cost wise. Okay, uh, especially if you get competent care, and that really matters, and that's not necessarily a given. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's when people either are absent, and and alcoholism and depression are kind of co-leaders in that field. But when people are present but not able to do anything, they're, they're there in body but not in brain, sort of. 
They're not concentrating. They're not wanting to go out and make calls on their customers. Uh, they're not wanting to do particularly those parts of their jobs that have to do with interacting with others. Okay, so not, the isolation can cause depression. Okay, can help contribute to the cause of depression, but isolation is also a symptom of depression. Mm. Okay, people are, are you know don't will turn down offers to go out. They won't answer the phone. Uh, that sort of thing. So um, uh, to make the point um, that presenteeism is when you're at work, but you're not able to do any work, but you look like you are. Yeah, you're right. there. Yeah, you're but... there. That's right. <laughs> Understood. So Woody Allen maybe made a mistake on that one when he said it's 90% just being there, right? It yeah. is something. It is a percent. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not 90. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, well I, I know a function of a, of a book you authored, Understanding Depression, is, is to you know, help readers find out if what they're coping with is, in fact, depression. Um, it's such a big question because we probably spend our entire time together like, like – I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there any kind of general questions or a litmus test, and this is very general, that you would encourage anybody to look at if well, they're deciding whether or not I'm going to seek help? Well, that's where actually the little checklist is can be helpful because mm. screeners are useful. But our diagnostic system in psychiatry, I think, is not one that's universally uh, applauded. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the group who was, I say, I was on the DSM-5 committee, and now I'm in a witness protection program, yeah. I sometimes say, <laughs> uh, because that isn't the be-all and end-all of an assessment of a patient. And uh, but, but there is the little checklist, and there are several of them out there. The PHQ-9 is one, it's called, uh, but it's really the nine criterion questions related to depression. And if you hit a lot of those check marks, then you go, huh. Uh, but the ones I focus on the most are uh, that when it's a severe depression is that the, there's a change in mood. But depression, the word depression doesn't always describe it very well. In fact, only about 50 percent of patients would say that sadness is the primary change in their mood. Uh, the other 50 percent give a variety of answers. And it's often a combination of these things. Anxiety is the next most common. OK. After that, it's uh, apathy. That is, I don't care. I don't feel like I care about things. And then the, the fourth most common is actually numbness. That is, I don't have any feelings. And you have people describing that, in fact, they had lost a loved one and didn't cry. Yeah. But they did, were very close to them, but they couldn't. They just didn't have the, the system that was working to let them do that. So, that's, so on the mood side, they've got that. But the other points I want to make, so there's some change in your mood, as my patients used to tell me when they would be questioning whether they really had depression. Well, doctor, I didn't need you to tell me I felt miserable. That's the reason I'm here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I said, yeah, but look, you're not able to focus your mind on your work. You told me you can't read a paragraph without having to reread it and retaining it, uh, and that you're feeling like life is hopeless, and that you're not a good person or you're not a good father, and your family says something entirely different. You know, uh, so uh, that, those are the so how you see yourself, especially if you see see yourself as not worthy of help. Uh, how how is your how's your brain functioning in terms of your ability compared to your normal, your ability to focus your attention and to maintain the focus to do those jobs that you need to do in order to get to those jobs you like to do, okay? And then some change in your mood, right? So those are, those are, that's an outline, but there are, there's, a, there's a lot of little checklists, and they're reasonable, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I know, and you've written about this too, um, sometimes it's hard for patients seeking mental health care to accept what is sometimes the slow pace of the recovery. Uh, is that a significant barrier to maybe not getting people in the room but getting them to stay? Yes, it is. But let me first say that uh, uh, the, right now, one of the biggest problems is finding somebody to give you the care. Right. Uh, and when people are easily discouraged, which they certainly are when they're depressed, 
There was a study done in Maryland that's now been replicated nationally where uh, uh, this group, the Mental Health Association, uh, called the 10 biggest insurers in the neighborhood, asked them all to give them their list of providers, and then they went about calling those providers. And only 14% of them were literally still taking patients for that insurance product. Okay. Wow. So if you make 20 calls, you're only going to get six answers, right? And making 20 calls sorry, is going to take a Herculean answers. effort. That's right. Who's like, going to do that? How right. many calls do you make before you quit? So yeah. that's so. first off, let's number one is finding the care, okay? Uh, number two is it's true that people, when they come, often feel that, well, I'm, I'm not severe enough. I shouldn't be. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be here yet. Uh, I always remind people that we, we don't have any complaints about people coming two weeks too early. Uh, mm-hmm. And, in fact, it probably makes our job easier if they do. Um, but it is true that people wonder, is this really what I need? And they, because they doubt every decision they make, including the decision to walk through the door. Yeah. Then the decision to, if I think they might need medication, the decision to take medicine. They're usually quite convinced. And, and as soon as they start taking it and they feel anything that they think might be different than what they felt before, it obviously was the medicine. So it's, it's, it's a struggle. And that's why, especially early in care, you need to be really attached to your patient and keeping in mind that that's right. What about when the antidepressants, the standard antidepressants, work the way they're supposed to? Well, the answer is that means that the peak benefit will be 12 weeks after you start. And, oh. you, and you won't see any benefit probably for the first two weeks or three. And typically it's four to six to seven weeks when you see people starting to get better. Uh, so that it really, you better be doing something besides pills <laughs> yeah. or they're never, it's really hard to stay with them. Yeah, on the subject of you know pharmaceutical treatments or therapies, um, it was interesting. I didn't know this until I was kind of preparing to talk to you today. But I was reading that one of the first like drug treatments for depression was actually a tuberculosis drug. Oh yeah. And they were kind of noticing on the TB wards that these patients were experiencing improvements in mental health and disposition. So then they started prescribing it, but they really didn't have any idea why or how it was working. Well, uh, listen, that's a very good point. And uh, yes, it's true. That's where we found all of our drugs by serendipitous uh, methods. Uh, that is just by dumb luck, as it were. Uh, but it's but it, but as one person said, who was the really the discoverer of lithium as a treatment for bipolar disorder, he said uh, serendipity means uh, to him meant accidental but inevitable. Okay, because ah. he was looking for something, right? And he was looking for a particular thing in a particular pathway. And the fellow who really first started using lithium in bipolar patients was studying uh, the you know put it taking. By the way, this is ancient, but it was a traditional medical exercise taking urine from manic patients and injecting them into guinea pigs. Okay. And they found, and they would also have a control group of people that got urine from normals, right? And uh, and the ones, the guinea pigs that got it from the manic patients were dying faster, okay? So they thought, oh, well, and the guy goes to the chemist who was down the hall from him. And he says, well, you better check and make sure it's not the uric acid crystals that can crystallize in your urine, you know, things that cause gout, and see that that's not it. Well, how do I take care of that? Well, you dissolve the crystals. And what's well, you use a salt that'll dissolve the crystal, the uric acid crystals. The most soluble uric acid salt is lithium urate. Okay. <laughs> ba Wow. And then it was, hey, this stuff seems to be working. I wonder if it's the lithium or if it's the that I got rid of the uric acid crystals. And Mongo tried lithium, and the rats and the guinea pigs didn't bite his clubs anymore. And then they started using it in patients and eventually figured out this is who it works with. Yeah. I mean, as, as drug therapies for mental, mental health disorders have evolved, do we see that happening more often where, I guess, evidence of something working isn't 
based almost solely on clinical outcomes, but actually biomarkers, things we can measure. Well, the biomarkers, right, is where we want it. Yeah. Okay, and 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 we're getting better at that. We can now at least take the drugs we have and improve them using the biomarkers mm-hmm. method, right? Saying if this works, here's how we think it works. Okay, let's study its effects on that. Was there one that does it a little better? Is there a change in that? So that part works, but still discovering new treatments has been largely serendipitous, although not 100%, like right now one of the best new treatments that is not taken a huge role yet, but I think could, is a new form of transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now that's been around for about 10 years, but it was not a, from my point of view, a robust treatment 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, But there's now a new method of doing it that involved changing, A, the frequency of the pulses, uh, and the new insight was just came out of an experiment that had nothing to do with depression, was to put it, put it in at a at a frequency that fits one of the brainwave frequencies, and the one that might be relevant for you that particular part of the brain that you think you're stimulating. Okay, oh, fascinating. And so that's called then they and the and the frequency they used was called the theta frequency. Okay, alpha, beta, gamma, theta. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so it's a relatively slow wave, but it turned out that then if you did that, the usual TMS in the past would take 45 minutes for a single treatment, and a single treatment didn't do very much. With this one, you could do a single treatment in five minutes instead of 45. Mm. So that's a huge savings, and you could do five in a day, okay? And then it really started having very different effects, levels of effects. So this new method that has just been approved, oh, I shouldn't say approved by the FDA because the FDA doesn't approve machines, doesn't approve the treatments, but they clear them <laughs> mm. as safe. But it's been compared to the standard TMS. It's been compared to other drugs, and it's been used in the patients that are called treatment-resistant uh, not a good term, but it's a useful concept when you're looking at a new treatment, people that had failed other treatments, and it looks quite good. And uh, uh, the group at Stanford really developed this uh, based on work done around the world, but uh, they put it together very wisely and, and sensibly. All right, interesting. So that, that so in a sense, that's finding TMS to start with was a bit of an accident, okay? And it came from a, a thing where somebody was getting, a, had one of the, a, a machine that was generating those uh, but it was generating them to create um, images with a handheld device, and the and the patient said, hmm, "That feels good. You know, do that again." Yeah. And that's you know led to this, that, and the other thing. So it wasn't totally surprising, but it wasn't anything we were thinking about, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I should. I also want to note that this sometimes happens outside the field of mental sure. health as well. I was just talking with a colleague who takes a, a a prescription for you know inflammation that was initially designed as as, as a cancer treatment. So it's, right. it's it, it does happen, and it's just that we are more dependent on that than others, and that's okay uh, for now. Uh, but that's why we really want to do the research uh, to understand the the origins of the disease. What are the original causes? What are the pathways from those causes into depression? How does social stress and genetics and other things contribute to depression, and including maybe misuse of some of the drugs that might even help it, right? So uh, there's lots of the causal pathways take things from many different areas, okay, and put them together and to say, okay, but look, here's the molecular pathway. If you can understand that molecular pathway, I used to say when we were doing our early studies of the genetics of bipolar disorder, if we can find out how Mother Nature makes one case, then we'll have a model for the other cases. Hmm. It may not work for all of them, but it'll work for some of them. Yeah. To say, look at this, look at I-95. If you want to go from Miami to New York, you should know something about I-95 if you're in a car, right? Yeah. yeah. But there are many off-ramps and on-ramps, right? So that's the other. That's what we're looking at. When we say a pathway, that's what we're looking at. Okay. And that's that idea of what we call etiology or original causes. Pathology, which is what happens in the brain, 
And then how does that, what happens in the brain, create the symptoms? Mm -hmm. Okay. So at any rate, as we say, the, the symptoms that people have of a condition usually relate to what organ or organ part is injured. The treatments are best designed when you know the pathway. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to circle back to yeah. what we were talking about, particularly vulnerabilities among you know adolescent teenage demographics and, and your work with uh, Dr. Karen Schwartz uh, leading the Adolescent Depression Awareness Program. What is this program? Um, tell me about, a bit about how it functions and is it particularly challenging to to, to diagnose or identify a depressive disorder in somebody from that age demographic because, how, you know, isolation, irritability, we kind of just consider that part of being a kid. Right, exactly. And that's, that's usually the differential diagnosis. Is this just an adolescent being an adolescent or is this a kid with depression? It's not so hard when the symptoms are clear enough. Mm. And, and the milder the condition, the harder it is. Okay, how can we tell for sure this isn't a depression brewing? Well, the answer is you've got to see them again. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and come back in two weeks. Let's see how you're doing then. Come back two weeks after that. Let's see how you're doing then. But her program called ADAP, A-D-A-P, that'll usually get you to a lot of places on the internet, but one of them will be the Adolescent Depression Awareness Program. It, in fact, wasn't designed to diagnose kids. It was designed to teach the whole kids in the whole classroom about depression. What we did was looked at all the textbooks of health class for the ninth, 10th, 11th graders, and mostly 10th grade is kind of where ninth grade is typically where kids get health class. And uh, only 50% of the books even had the word depression in them. Mm. And the, those 50% never put it under the category of diseases. They put it under stresses, okay? Mm. Which is okay. I mean, it is both. <laughs> you well, know? sure. But if you don't have that characterization of it being an illness, right. well, then it just becomes a weakness of character or right. something. Or something, right. Yeah. That's right. Or something bad that you got to put up with, mm. right? And put up with the depression that makes you not want to get out of bed. Is, mm. That's not so good. So at any rate, so, uh, and it turns out that um, um, she created a little curriculum and then initially she taught it and then she got, you know, uh, residents in psychiatry to teach it and then she got nurses and nursing students. Now it's an online thing. And, it's, uh, and while they were still teaching it in a face-to-face -face mode, they did over 110,000 kids. And we can show you that they do learn. And not only do they learn, but that helps reduce stigma and helps them help their fellow classmates when they see them in trouble. So there's actually a film that goes with it that's called Day for Night. And uh, the, the theme of the movie uh, uh, at the end, you can hear, you have, you follow six youngsters around with their friends and their families a little bit, vignettes, seeing them in different shapes, presenting somewhat differently with different complications. But at the end, uh, there's two guys, one of whom has depression and the other who was his best buddy. Uh, they show them working out in the weight room and they're saying as they push their weights up, uh, tell somebody, tell somebody, mm. tell somebody. And I think that's the main message. By the way, another program that's very similar to that that's being done that's also superb is called Mental Health First Aid, okay? Developed originally by a fellow in, in Australia, great guy, whose wife had had depression, and she made him do it. He was a cancer doctor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she said, you're an epidemiologist. You should do this. And he, and he knew that the first thing he had to do was to find a system that would have people volunteer to take the training, right? And then see if they get the training to work and then find a way to sustain it over time. And so we thought of it like, therefore, the CPR card. That, you know, CPR card, people volunteer to do it. Some people have to do it, but, but they pay their, their 40 bucks or whatever it is. They go learn how to do it and they get their card, right? Well, they did the mental health first aid the same way. And it does pay for itself. And it was really cool 
because and they developed one eventually for the for adolescents, you know, young adults, adolescents as well from the regular adults. And the adolescent task was just like the movie. It was get them to a responsible adult. Okay. 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 Uh, so both are terrific. Okay. And what we found was is it just teaching information and teaching how to talk to somebody, which is the mental health first aid, teaching how to talk to somebody who may need help. Okay. Those two things, either one of them can have the benefit not only of making you more capable of doing it, but they also have the benefit of decreasing stigma and that we see that, that people are less worried about that. In other words, if you have that, sure, you get care, right? Yeah. So thanks for asking about that because it's a really important movement. And there are other programs in high school classes. We're now developing one for middle school. Okay, another younger faculty member that's working with Dr. Schwartz is doing that. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, the, to that work. And, the, and there's now a bigger focus on the mental health in the colleges. And we've worked a lot on the ones on the medical campus at Hopkins. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I came in as the chair, we had a system that was not a good system. Um, so bad, I don't want to tell you about it, but, but it's okay. But what we had to do was get it incorporated into the general university health system so we could all work together. And that's one of the keys in mental health, by the way, is it's not just about psychiatrists or about just about psychologists. It's about, there are about 10 professions that work. And we work better together because each can help in different ways. And, uh, and people will have different ways of catching the cases and showing you the cases. So in primary care, we work with social workers, uh, uh, nurses, uh, everybody. And we do the same thing in psychiatry as well. So I do think it's a team sport. And, uh, and therefore, a psychiatrist in his office with a patient is a good thing, but that's only one, that's probably only 10% of the work. Yeah. Well, I'm, this final question I have for yeah. you is, is kind of a personal one, but what, what prompted you to, to get into the field that you're in? Because you're obviously very passionate about it. You're, you're extremely accomplished. Well, th- well, thank you very much for that. I am passionate. I, I'll, I'll own that one. Uh, I even call myself an expert now because the great physicist Niels Bohr said that a, an expert is someone who's made every mistake possible in a narrow field. Okay. So I say, okay, I can own that one. I can do that one. But, but what interested me was actually I was, as a 14-year-old, a little precocious in politics and worked in a political campaign. And uh, we thought that our candidate was going to get a maximum of 40% of the vote, and he got 60%. And I said, boy, I just don't understand people. And I really wanted to understand people. That became a driving force in my life. I wanted, and now, as I say, the interesting thing is 50 years later, I realize that's not a destination. That's a journey, mm-hmm. right? It's the journey. Because I, I know now enough to know, no, I don't understand this person or that person, but I can improve what I understand about them by being with them and talking to them and listening to them and making them give me more than just their symptoms, but who they are as a person and where they've been. All right, well said. Well, Dr. Ray DePaulo, thanks so much for, for your work and for, for taking the time to share your insights with, with me and our listeners. Well, thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here to do that. That was Johns Hopkins psychiatrist Dr. Ray DePaulo talking about his recent talk, Depression, the Invisible Pandemic, through the FGCU Provost Seminar Series in partnership with the Naples Discussion Group. That's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of the program, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez, Mike Canary, and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO, Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.